0: time for part two of this theological look at the music of Metallica on Three Chords in the Truth, a special presentation of the Apologetics podcast. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the problem of evil, the power of shame, and the God that failed, all in the music of Metallica. Thank you so much for listening. It's time for Three Chords and the Truth. In these special episodes of The Apologetics Podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I go looking for God's truth in the movies and in the music that have captured our
1: imagination. To learn more about The Apologetics Podcast, visit theapologeticspodcast.com at an internet near you. To receive our
0: free newsletter, go to theapologeticsnewsletter.com.
1: Thank you so much for joining us on this special Three Chords in the Truth episode of The Apologetics Podcast.
0: So, we see on this album these themes of mortality, of inward darkness. We start to see this theme that's only been hinted at before in Metallica's music of this anger and faith and struggle to forgive. You start to see that. That really works its way out on their later albums as well, but you first start to see it on this particular album that has the song, The God That Failed. And many listeners hear this as if it's an atheistic anthem, but If you think this is an atheistic anthem, this song "The God That Failed," you've missed the point of this particular song.
1: Yeah, we got to remember what what has shaped Hetfield here, and and also we got to remember that questioning God or even accusing him of failing. Well, we've talked about this issue of pain and suffering and, and evil. We've talked about the Psalms and how the Psalms make way and permit and provide a framework even for the entirety of of human emotion, including accusations of God being absent, of abandoning, of forsaking. That's no different than the words of the God that failed. And so, in fact, if you're an atheist, you don't believe in a God to accuse of failing. It completely misses the point. And knowing James's story makes sense of a lot of what goes on here. Yeah, this
0: song is about his mother, who died of this cancer that probably could have been cured. And she died trusting God, in her own mind at least, and yet she died of this. And so in his mind, the God that she prayed to, the God that she was appealing to, whatever that was, that failed. That was a failure. And as Garrick already pointed out, this is really important for us to understand that Job cries out against God. Job cries out and says his feelings, speaks his feelings that God has abandoned him, all these things. And at the end of the book, it says, my servant Job did not sin with his mouth. So even in these times of struggle and pain that Job is asking questions and Job is saying, God, it seems like you've abandoned me. It seems like you failed me. He was not sinning. He was not sinning. And at the end, God shows up. And so when we hear something like this, this is not an atheistic anthem. This is rather a wrestling with a failure of what he thought God would do or what at least his mother thought God would do in her circumstances. From his perspective, she trusted in God and it cost her
1: her life. And that's the lyrics of the song, what he's getting at. So in Hetfield's Job moment, right, that he records in the song, you have this line. Trust you gave, a child to save, left you cold and him in grave. Deceit, deceive, decide just what you believe. I see faith in your eyes, never you hear the discouraging lies. I hear faith in your cries, broken is the promise, betrayal. The healing hand held back by the deepened nail follow the God that failed. I mean, it's absolutely a reflection on probably the most traumatic point in his life to that point, I would guess. And notice it says about a child in that. He's probably talking about himself.
0: There's a sense in which he died in that moment of her dying. There's something about him that he rightly recognized. There's something about himself that died as well. And so I want us to wrestle with this question of, did God fail in this particular instance? Is this really a failure of God? What is it a failure of that James Hetfield is is wrestling with? Because he says the healing was held back by the deepened nail. That's what it says in the song over and over. That's one of these repeated lines in it. The healing was held back, he says, by the deepened nail. And so it seems like he's saying there that God's weakness or God's suffering kept him from healing James's mother. and And the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves and with one another, we know that we've all felt this way sometimes. God, why didn't you act in this situation? What kept you from saving this circumstance? What was it that you didn't help this child? Why didn't you let this happen in the way I prayed for? And we wonder, is God weak? Is God not as good as we thought? What is holding him back? And that's what he's wrestling with. What's holding you back? This deepened nail. What is it, God, that held you back from helping my mother when she cried out to you? And and the fact is that when that does happen in our lives, we honestly don't know what it is, what God's reason is. Even as Christians who have a, a faith and a belief in this, we don't know all of God's reasons. We do know this, that God's plans are greater than we can see. And we know that in Christ, he enters into our sufferings and makes it his own—makes our sufferings his own. We do know that. But he's crying out something that we don't have the answer to.
1: It really feels like, I mean, when I look at the words, especially the line that that we read, it strikes me as a song that he's singing to his mother. Trust you gave his mother a child to save, left you cold. So she dies, But and him engrave, right? Not an actual death, but the effect of, of this moment on his life. And that line held back by the deepened nail, we know that that would be true if Jesus had stayed dead, right? If he hadn't been raised from the grave, that the deepened nail neither held him back from resurrection, from ascending to the Father, and from all that follows. The giving of the Spirit to continue the work of redeeming people, to break his kingdom into our world, right? We know that to be truth. It sounds like in this moment, That that's not truth for Hetfield.
0: And we have to remember at this point, again, Christian science, what the teaching of Christian science is. If we go back to their writings, there's one I found from 1893 trying to think through what their official theology is on this issue – What resurrection is, the resurrection of Jesus is, for Christian scientists, is that basically Jesus, according to one of their own authors, Jesus was merely asserting the great fact of man's being that no man can die. And in other words, what they're saying in that is what the resurrection was is a recognition that death is only an illusion. So they don't believe in Christian science that the resurrection happened because God supernaturally acted. They don't believe that. Rather— What they believe is that Jesus recognized and asserted the fact that nobody actually dies at all, that death is merely an illusion. And what James Hetfield rightly recognizes here, he rightly recognizes, is that death is real. It's not an illusion. His mother truly was gone from him. That's really happened. And so in his crying out, Remember, the context in which he's hearing this and the context in which his mother is praying for healing is a context in which they believe that even the resurrection is merely asserting that you don't really die. And in that, when he says that your hand is held back by the deepened nail, it actually makes sense, because if that were true— If God didn't ever supernaturally act to raise Jesus from the dead, then it is exactly right. That that deepened nail, the death of Jesus on the cross, it really, truly is is the end of things. Because James Hetfield has realized that this whole claim that you overcome death by saying death is an illusion, that that
1: is utterly and completely false. And so what we would say to James Hetfield of 1990, 1991 is that – it's not God that failed, but it was a lie, a lie about God that was revealed to not be true. It was a false God that your mother did put her faith in, her trust. There were promises that were broken. There, there was betrayal, but they weren't from God. They were from a belief system that had long left the truths of Scripture, the truths that God had revealed about Himself.
0: Yeah, the tragedy in this really was his mother placed her ultimate trust in, in something that was false. And there's an equal tragedy, but it's not the end at this point of this tragedy. And it's that James Hetfield, he's rightly left Christian science behind. He recognizes that doesn't offer any truth, but he's still in so many areas of his own life, he seems to be chasing a, a false vision of God. And a lot of times we talk about these people and they're dead. James Hetfield is still very much alive. And so as I think about this, I think about it prayerfully, recognizing that there are things that, that could happen and there are things that God can do to open his own heart and mind and life to the truth of God. But right now, where he's at seems to be in terms of God and forgiveness is he says, I believe in a higher power. Yes, he, she, or it. I see it everywhere. If I choose to see it, it makes me feel better. And so on the one hand, he believes in God. He does believe in God of some sort, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's, it's a God of his own imagination, just like the God of Christian science was a God of Mary Baker Eddy's imagination. And this God of his imagination, what that God can't provide among many other things is forgiveness. And as we look at James Hetfield, if there's one thing he knows he needs is forgiveness. He knows he needs that, and that's something that a he, she, or it higher power cannot give him the forgiveness that he needs, and he knows it. He knows he
1: needs it. Part of Hetfield's story, part of his searching, his digging, his asking questions, it has a dark side to it. After the Black Album, alcoholism just takes grip or more of a grip, and it spins further and further out of control until – 2001, right? Ten years later, and he's married at this point. Um, but 2001, his wife kicks him out.
2: Alcohol was uh, ever since well, I think ever since my mother died, that became more of a part of me. Alcohol at age 13 uh, uh, or no, sorry, 16. Uh, it became you know, it starts off as the cliche, hey, I feel more alive, I feel looser, I feel more comfortable, I can talk to women, uh, I can, you know, get on stage and all of this. Uh, it, was, it was kind of the fog. I was already in somewhat of a fog and that helped it be more fun. Um, and then the, the typical story of starting to need it And then it became just like this maintenance and it was a constant fog and a lot of things I can't remember you know blackout drinking was was not good Uh, getting in fights uh, all kinds of you know a trail of destruction the the cliche of that Um, but then it, it, it certainly got more and more evident that it was changing me I was bringing some of the road life home. And now I had a family and children, and it certainly wasn't a good combination.
1: And he says that losing my family, that was the thing that scared me so much. That was the bottom I hit, that my family is going to go away because of my behaviors that I brought home from the road. I didn't want that. As part of my upbringing, my family kind of disintegrated. And so he became, at that point, in his own words, a reborn straight edge, right? But for those that know his story, they know that that scared him straight and that he can talk about being reborn, but it's also kind of a just a false front. And it was built on his own efforts of trying to get it right after almost losing his family. And By 2019, he has a, and I think there was another one, maybe even before this, but he has a major relapse and has to go back into rehab. And when asked about that, he said this about the things that he did when he he drank, right? He says, you wouldn't really like me if you knew my story. If you knew what horrible things I've done, shame is a big thing for me. And I'm just like, brother, welcome to the club. That's all of us. You wouldn't like me if you knew my story, if you knew what horrible things I've done. I'm right there with you, James. The difference is is I know of a whole nother story. I know of a a whole nother reality. I know a truth that speaks into those things I believe about myself.
0: And I think we have to recognize in ourselves and in our churches, we are so full of this feeling and everybody hides it. Every one of us, you're at church and we're singing, and if we really are honest with ourselves and think, if these people around me knew my heart, they would hate me. And we all have to recognize that that is our human condition, and we can do one of two things with that. We can build walls up and try to hide it and live with that shame, or we can own it and take that shame to the people of God and ultimately to the cross of Christ and he says, shame's a big thing for me. And if we're honest, it's a big thing for all of us. And it's what nothing of this sort of vague God that he has an idea of, this vague higher power, can't satisfy that hunger in his soul. And you you also see the struggle with shame in what I consider to be the most shocking video that James Hetfield has ever done. It's not shocking in the way you think of shocking. It shocked me that he did this video. But there's a particular video in which he did an anti pornography documentary. And you may not realize this, James Hetfield did, he narrated this anti-pornography documentary called Chasing the Cardboard Butterfly. And it's a powerful video. And this whole thing of chasing the cardboard butterfly it comes from a bit of research that actually won several prizes years and years ago, in which they recognized that certain butterflies they try to mate based on the attractiveness and the colors and the size of a particular butterfly. And so they made cardboard butterflies that were brighter than any of the others. And what they found after a while is that the butterflies would no longer mate with one another because they were enamored with these fake butterflies. And the point of this this documentary is that's what pornography does. It gives this something fake that people then prefer to what is good and beautiful and true and real. And this particular documentary narrated by James Hetfield begins with Adam and Eve in the garden, and it ends with scientific evidence for the harm that pornography causes. And it shows just a lot of movement on his part, because obviously, as, as we may know in the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s, he's very connected with a lot of things that we're not even going to to mention on our podcast. But clearly, there has been some sort of change in him for him to narrate something like this. So here's a clip for you from his narration of this particular
2: video. Our children are potentially exposed to massive amounts of pornography on a daily basis by the tap of a finger. It is teaching them a lie. It is belittling spouses, emasculating men and destroying the beautiful essence of women. Admit it or not, it is here and it is harmful. And that is precisely the sole purpose of this film. It is to shine a light into a darkness that looms over us as a human race. There is great power among people when they learn that they're not alone in a struggle. There is conversely great power in the shame that keeps people down. And shame should not win.
1: There's an openness in James Hetfield that has been there for a while. And it's looked different throughout a story. But I've just always felt it and have enjoyed seeing it grow and develop and like you prayerfully, hopefully desiring, asking for God to just grab hold of him in his lifetime. But he's got this openness to the beauty of the true God, right? And I think some of that seems to be because he he hasn't yet been able to find anything else that satisfies, that speaks to, at least not permanently, this guilt and shame that he struggles with. So he's certainly not Christ-centered, but he is, to steal a line from Flannery O'Connor, he is Christ-haunted. I get that, and I love that. and, And I think that there's also something important for those of us who are believers to see in his story that it's this feeling of guilt and shame that keeps him open and searching and all of that. But he also... He also has an awareness, an explicit awareness, that he's thrown out there in public, where he's admitted he's admitted this struggle with. You wouldn't like me if you really knew. And my concern, for me personally, for believers, is that that's something that we're aware of and we keep inside. Right there is there's language that our church started to use. I I don't remember what year, but it became so much of the language we use that when you use. A restroom stall, you'll see material that has this phrase in it, and that's that it's okay to not be okay. And that that's something that we need to hear over and over and over. And not only do we need to hear it, but then we need to be people who also practice it for others, right? We need to believe that God... Truly loves us in a way that this is true. It's okay not to be okay. And that when God gets a hold of you, he won't leave you that way, but you don't have to become okay in order to come to him, right? And that we need to provide that same type of space for those of us around us, for believers in our church, for the quote unquote insiders and for the folks who walk in from the streets that we must be marked by this type of genuine welcoming genuine love for all and we need to rehearse those words that it's okay to not be okay i think if we did that more that more folks like james hetfield would would find a home in the church and and would see this witness that is very much not the witness that he got growing up but he would see the witness to the to the beauty of the true god and i'm confident it would be compelled to place his trust in that God.
0: And you see that what he has seen as the public face of Christianity often is the televangelists or things like that. You see that in the song Leper Messiah, for example, and you've seen that or he's seen his growing up, what he saw growing up of this illusory world that's clearly false that is is, is based in that. You get the feeling that he hasn't necessarily seen authentic and true Christianity. You just get that sense that he he perhaps has never seen that. And we do have to have that in our churches, this attitude of what does somebody do who is filled with guilt and shame? What do they do? And because we don't have a place to put that sometimes, then people who are addicted, they keep it hidden until it gets out of control to the point that it can no longer be kept hidden. And then by that time, it has so devastated their lives that we are left picking up pieces that have just exploded everywhere at that point. But sometimes, not always, but sometimes, the reason it got held in so long was because we didn't have any spot in the church to put that. And we didn't have any language to use. We didn't have anything in our liturgy that let people own their addictions and bring those forward or talk about their shame or talk about their guilt, talk about the abuse they've experienced, talking about all those things that are impacting their lives. We didn't provide a spot for that. And we have to do that. the church and people's lack of forgiveness. And that's another one of these themes in Hetfield that we see is this struggle to forgive, the struggle to forgive his parents. And he has said that his most personal song is the song, Unforgiven. And I find it fascinating that he has not done just one version of this song, but sort of three variations of this, Unforgiven, Unforgiven 2, And Unforgiven Three, and the progression in those three songs is very telling. If you look at the first one on the Black album, Unforgiven, he refuses to forgive his abusive parents. He is angry. It's clear that he's angry. He declares abusive parents to be unforgiven. Now, even in that, I think he recognized something was wrong with that because I don't know exactly when it was, but he started at the end of that song of saying to the audience, forgive yourself. And he would make a motion like a priest, like a priestly type of emotion and saying, forgive yourselves, as if he was giving absolution to the crowd.
2: Please forgive yourselves, London.
0: Thank you. But this first song, Angry, refusing to forgive. The second one is he sees himself as somebody who's unforgiven, and he finds himself in community with other people who are unforgiven. He's dialoguing with somebody else who's unforgiven. He's in a community of outcasts, we might see, with another person. They're both unforgiven. By the time he gets to unforgiven three, he forgives everyone else, but he cannot forgive himself. He cannot forgive himself. And that is a powerful statement of where he's at. And in 2008, there's this interview with David Frick. And in this interview, James Hetfield takes his daughter to St. Petersburg to see the Rembrandt painting. You know, I've talked about this painting before, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And while he's there, he tells his daughter that's his favorite painting in the world. So James Hetfield's Favorite painting is Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son, and it's his favorite because when he was in rehab at one point, one of the times he was in rehab, one of the directors of the rehab center had asked him who he was in the story of the prodigal son. I find it fascinating because it makes me think that there may have been some Christian influence on him in rehab, perhaps even. But James's answer to that is, I'm all three. I'm all three. I'm the father who forgives. I'm the son who needs forgiveness and I'm the older brother who can't forgive. I'm all of them in that painting. And that again from just, you know, a few years ago, that's just a revealing thing again to see of what's going on in James Hetfield's heart and in his in his life.
1: Yeah. I think we see echoes of that in other songs. Like the song The Thorn Within right has that line I am the secret I am the sin, I am the guilty, I am the thorn within, right? I mean, it's just one of the things, I know a lot of musicians are like that, but I'll tell you that a lot of my favorites are the ones that are explicitly processing right, what's going on in their lives, their hearts, just explicitly in their songs as it's happening real time in their life and the realness, the openness, the rawness that, that comes with that vulnerability, that honesty through your art is very compelling to me.
0: And in that, as we think about this vulnerability he shows in this conversation about the return of the prodigal son and the song, The Thorn Within, it brings us back where it should to the gospel, that remember that what we're talking about in the gospel is that Jesus became sin for us. He became shame for us. He became guilty for us. He took the thorn within upon himself and carried our guilt 2 Corinthians 5:21 the one who knew no sin became for us sin that we might know the righteousness of God and Christians have dealt with this issue of shame and sorrow for sin through the ages this isn't something that just in the modern age we've started thinking about or talking about this is something that's been around for a long time one of my favorite quotes from John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion is in book three, chapter three of the Institutes. And here's what John Calvin says. He says, sorrow for sin is necessary, but it should not be perpetual. Quit the anxious and painful recollection of your ways. Arise to a remembrance of divine blessings. And when you reflect on your own meanness, reflect also on your Lord's goodness. When you reflect on your own meanness, reflect also on your Lord's goodness. That's the message that James Hetfield and, and all of us need to hear is that when you reflect on your own meanness Reflect also on your Lord's goodness. But that only comes by means of the gospel, by means of union with Christ, by means of trusting Christ, in which we become united with Christ in such a way that when the Father looks at us, he can think nothing less of us than he thinks of Jesus himself, because he sees us in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And, and James Hetfield keeps struggling with forgiving himself,
1: forgiving himself— we see an openness in Hetfield. But also in his story, we see that while he sees the problem, he's open to healing and forgiving and whatnot. He's also trying to do it himself, right? And again, this is a message not for just the unbeliever, but for believers alike, because we operate like that so many times. So many times we're trying to fix ourselves, make ourselves better. We've been scared into wanting to be better, scared by our own sin, maybe scared by our false thoughts of God and that he will suddenly change his mind and consider us unlovable, right? That we'll out sin him. And it's not the case. And so we are driven by these fears and fears of being found out. And so we do try to do so many things of our own power. And the truth is, You can't fix yourself, and you don't have to, and you don't have to forgive yourself. We find forgiveness in the sacrifice of Christ. We find forgiveness in God, the God that never fails.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting The Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and
1: the truth. As
0: always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug.
1: To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at theapologeticspodcast.com.
0: Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast.
3: from you